Hello, and welcome to Creepresentation. This is a podcast highlighting queer and trans-disabled artists, specifically centering Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. The name of the podcast comes from the reclaimed slur, cripple, which was often and is sometimes still used against disabled people to dehumanize and devalue us. I'd like to take the time to note that not all disabled people reclaim that slur, and not all of our guests will self-identify that way. My name is Mari, and I'm a gender-fluid, queer-disabled, multidisciplinary artist. I started this podcast with the help of Extra Magazine to celebrate the most underrepresented members of my communities. These conversations are meant to share just a slice of the knowledge and perspectives that our identities give us. This is the only episode of this season that was recorded this year. During our original recording schedule, I reached out to our next guest, but unfortunately, my production schedule with Extra wasn't able to accommodate them. Fortunately, when I re-began work on this podcast, I was able to reach out to them again and schedule our next interview, in which I could address current events like COVID-19 and the growing push against systemic racism. In this interview, I interviewed Cyrus Marcus Ware, a Black, trans, disabled, mad, queer artist and activist. He is a visual artist, performance artist, and a core member of Black Lives Matter Toronto. Earlier this month, I got on the phone with Cyrus and discussed defunding the police and prison abolition, their work in responding to COVID-19, the connection between disability justice and Black liberation, and parenting as a Black disabled trans artist. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, taking the time today to uh, talk to me. I'm Sorry, I wasn't able to fit you into our original recording schedule, but I'm glad I was able to uh, get you now. Yeah, no problem. So, Cyrus, you are a multidisciplinary artist. You've worked across a lot of mediums. I was just watching your the, the video on your website from the uh, installation you did at Ryerson called Ancestors Do You Read Us? And it was such a, a powerful piece, and it feels so relevant even now. So uh, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you um, started in your arts journey. Um, yeah, I became an artist about 25 years. Well, I was always an artist as a kid, too. Um, I come from a long line of artists. My mom was an artist. Uh, my grandmother is an artist. So I, I started making artwork around the same time as I got involved in organizing around 25 years ago, like professionally making work. And uh, yeah, I've just, you know, I started primarily as a painter and then moved into doing drawing and performance and installation. And um, it's been, you know, quite a journey, but it's been intertwined with my activism. So my activist practice is sort of informing my art practice and my art practice is informing my activist practice, which is really nice. I know that you are a core member of the Toronto chapter of Black Lives Matter. Is there any other activism uh, or organizing that you are doing uh, otherwise, or are you focusing mostly? Yeah, I'm I'm a core team member of Black Lives Matter Toronto. I also, for the last 18 years, have organized with Blackness Yes that puts on Bacarama every year. That's the largest longest running stage at Pride. It's the Black, Queer, and Trans stage at Pride. So I've been very involved in organizing with them and then organizing around prison abolition for about 25 years. Can you tell me a little bit about your work in prison abolition? I feel like that is not only super relevant right now, but also uh, it is just something that I'm, I've also been very interested in 
and I've been trying to learn more about as well. Yeah, I mean, I uh, helped to start the Prisoners Justice Action Committee, which was this early prison abolition organization that was operating in Toronto in the early 2000s. And we, uh, through that group, did the Prisoner Justice Film Festival, which was a three-year-long uh, film festival focused on prison abolition and prison issues, and also launched the 81 Reasons campaign, which was a sort of a high-profile uh, campaign that tried to stop the building of the youth super jail in Brampton, the Roy McMurtry Center. And then um, I ended up, uh, you know, continuing on. I'm doing a PhD. Part of my PhD is specifically looking at prison abolition. And I teach a class, a master's and PhD level class at York University in prison abolition with Dr. Jen Harita Warren. And uh, together we've been co-teaching for three years uh, this, this course that you can take to literally learn the ins and outs of prison abolition. That's amazing. Sorry, there's just so much about your work that I would love to get into, but maybe you could also tell me a little bit about how you found that your different identities um, as a, a Black artist, a trans artist, um, and a disabled artist, how those identities informed your arts practice. Yeah, I mean, I'm an artist who, you know, makes work about the social issues that are happening around me. You know, I'm an artist who believes in that Tony Cade Bambara quote that the role of the oppressed artist is to make the revolution irresistible. So that's what I've been trying to do. So to me, you know, as a black artist, as a disabled artist, as a mad artist, as a queer artist, as a trans artist, to me it's been so important to make our lives visible, you know, to render visible what has been erased from, um, you know, histories and archives of the city, of this country, of this place, of Turtle Island. Um, so, I, you know, through this project, Activist Portrait Series, I've been drawing portraits of BIPOC activists, um, queer and trans activists, disabled activists, uh, large scale, 12 feet, 12 feet tall, you know, five or six feet wide. Um, and I've been doing that project for four or five years and I've drawn countless portraits of, of organizers as a way of trying to render visible, you know, these, these invisible lives, um, as, as Vivian Amaste calls, calls trans erasure. Um, and then, you know, through other practices like the Activist Love Letter Project and through things like that, I've been able to, you know, try to, um, yeah, find ways to kind of support and sustain uh, activism and, 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 and organizing through, through that work. So in the last few months, I know you've also been doing a lot of organizing art and activism around mutual aid in response to the pandemic that we're in. Can you tell me a little bit about the things that you've been doing sort of since we went into that state of emergency? Yeah, I mean, as a disabled activist, you know, who's my my work is really rooted in disability justice. You know, to me, right away, the pandemic was this opportunity for us to show up for each other in a different way than we have before. You know, for people who don't have compromising immune systems, for people who weren't elders, for people who weren't disabled, to say, I'm actually going to stay inside in order to make sure that you stay safe, that you stay alive, you know, that, you're, that your life matters, you know, and we saw that in, in such a beautiful way that 
process of mutual aid and collective care, you know, really started to grow. People were borrowing from models that had been operating within disability justice communities for a while, like pod mapping, like who's in your pod, who's going to take care of you if you get sick, what's your crisis plan, you know, who do you who, who do you call first, what, do you, what, what supplies do you have, what supplies do you need, you know, doing all of that work, you know, to make sure that each of us is ready to have what we need to survive any eventuality, you know, that was something that was so beautiful. And I, I loved, you know, reading the work that Leah Lakshmi, Piepstina Samarasina was putting out, Rebel Stacy Black, you know, folks like that in the States who were, you know, creating these these models of, of, of how we could care uh, for each other. Um, and then seeing how that manifested itself in Toronto, you know, first with things like caremongering groups and then, you know, um, other other practices, <laughs> my daughter's uh, here, other practices that were sort of playing out through the city um, where people were sort of showing up and taking care, uh, you know, people doing grocery shopping for each other, people, you know, just, yeah, people just taking care of each other. So what we started doing with BLM was we recognized that, of course, one, you know, uh, that black people were are often the first fired and the last hired, uh, you know, so in a situation where suddenly everybody was out of work, you know, this is creating a huge crisis. And then also we recognized that black people in places where race-based data was being collected, black people were being disproportionately affected by COVID-19. So one of the things that we did was create the Black COVID-19 Response Fund, where we raised you know, fifty or sixty thousand dollars that got directly uh, given back to our communities in in two hundred fifty dollars stipends to support people, um, you know, organizing and 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 having what they need to to survive. And then through a partnership with the Good Food Box, we were able to give out four hundred and fifty four uh, food boxes over a period of four or five weeks to a whole bunch of black families in, in the city. And that felt really great, you know, to be able to help people at a moment at a moment when everything was so uncertain, you know, and people were really wondering, when am I gonna work again? And where, how, where am I gonna, you know, get the money to make ends meet? Um, you know, we were able to offer some, some support that way. So that felt quite good. And then, yeah, just being able to, you know, sort of be engaged with some other uh, prison abolitionists uh, to try to support decarceration and try to get folks out of uh, jails and prisons during this period of COVID-19 because, of course, they're just whipping through the prisons and people are dying at an astronomical rate. And so we are pushing for decarceration to get folks out. Um, and that's been that's been a lot of my work since April. Wow. You do so much. It's really um, kind of awe-inspiring to see how much you you put back into the the community and i was wondering what are things that the disabled community especially you know non-black uh, disabled community members uh, what are ways that we can give back or even not even just the disabled community but everyone sort of in the non-black communities how can we kind of you know also contribute and support especially through this pandemic and especially while so many issues are, are coming to the forefront for, you know, mainstream public. Yeah. I think, you know, for a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, people, you know, the response that we would love to see is a response, you know, we want people to get involved, we want people to get engaged, you know, I think about that beautiful uh, architectural artwork that, public artwork that Cara Springer made uh, in the United States that just was a, a, a billboard, freestanding billboard that said, white people, period, do something. 
period, you know, and I just thought that was such a powerful statement. And I think what we're looking for right now is for people to get involved, everybody, every warm body to get involved in calling for an end to to these black deaths, and in particular to the way that the police are brutalizing black mad people and black disabled people. I mean, that's who's representing the majority of these cases, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a chorus of voices, you know, calling to defund the police, you know, calling to abolish the police because they're brutalizing black and indigenous communities. We're looking at black and indigenous mad people being killed weekly on the news, you know, black uh, and indigenous trans people, you know, being murdered, disappeared. The police are not keeping us safer or more secure. And so I think that what, you know, a lot of folks would love is support and action around some of the demands that we're pushing for, you know, in order for us to be able to live in a world where black lives truly mattered and where we got to be free. We need to abolish these systems of violence that are perpetuating the, you know, a lot of the black death that, that you're seeing on the news. I think that's, you touched on something uh, really important there uh, and something that I've been trying to be more conscious of uh, in my own work in the disability community. And that's how that intersection of um, blackness and disability creates this very vulnerable intersection of identities and how we can't really separate these the issues that black people are are bringing up right now um, from disability justice and from our our fight as a disability community as a whole. Yeah, I mean, exactly. This is the thing, right, is that our liberation is intrinsically tied up with one another. So the Combahee River Collective was saying in the 1970s, you know, if we make the world safer for black women, we're necessarily making the world safer for everyone. And I think if we were to update that into a 2020 vision, you know, we would say if we made the world safer for black trans women with disabilities, we'd be making the world safer for everyone. Because imagine if we actually lived in a world where black trans women with disabilities lives mattered and what that would actually look like and what that would mean about what we would shape our society to look like and be like to ensure that those lives were inherently valuable. So I think, you know, for a lot of, um, disabled, um, like for example, my experience with disability studies and with a lot of disability art was that it was very white, it was very whitewashed, and it was still rooted in a lot of the white supremacy that our society is based in. So right now we need a, a stark departure from that. We need people to, you know, support and and, and, and uplift the voices of, of black and indigenous disabled folks who are calling for the kinds of changes that are going to result in the potential for us to survive this. Um, that's what we need right now. And of course, that by doing that, if we did create that world where that black trans woman who was disabled, that her life mattered, every disabled person's life would matter. Every person, every living being on this planet would matter if we created a world that actually matters for that person. So you talked about um, imagining that world. What does that world look like to you when you envision it? Well, I love these, you know, I, I have this t-shirt that I got from an amazing artist online, I'm going to forget their name, but, um, but it says the future is accessible, you know, and I love it, I love it, and I wear it all the time, but I want to, you know, stress that I only want to live in this accessible future if we've addressed the anti-blackness that is pervasive. If we're living in an accessible but anti-black future, then it's not actually an accessible future, you know? Um, and so I'm very interested in this beautiful world that we've been working towards building. I mean, abolitionists, you know, black revolutionaries, and you know, folks who are fighting for indigenous resurgence have been painting this new world uh, for, for decades. 
of what it could look like. You know, what a world that police could look like, what a world where Black Lives Matter could look like. Um, and I think that, you know, that we would have, you know, the kinds of community supports that everybody had what they needed to thrive. And not only that, but to thrive. We know that there would be things like universal basic incomes, that there would be housing for all, that there would be status for all, that there would be a safe supply of drugs for people who use drugs, that there would be a decriminalization of sex work, of of drug use, of, of HIV status, you know, that we would know that we'd be living in a world where we solved conflict and where we addressed harm in ways that weren't reliant on a prison industrial complex or a policing system to resolve them. And we'd know that we had plenty of supports set up for people who were in emotional or psychiatric distress so that we never had to call the police for a, a crisis call ever again. We actually have had built alternatives that were rooted in the communities, that were based in the community, that were actually respectful of mad people's lives, you know, and our autonomy, you know, this idea of support us, don't control us, you know. So, I, you know, I, I think our, our this world that we're working towards could be so beautiful if we just would allow ourselves to take the imaginative leap that, uh, that you know, that, that, that these things are entirely possible. They're possible in our lifetime. I mean, George Jackson... Black Panther and political prisoner, he, you know, famously wrote that abolition was less of a of a wild dream than parole for a lot of black people in prison, you know, because black people are treated terribly within the prison industrial complex and within the police state. It's it's not broken. It's working exactly as it's designed to. It is designed to kill us. It is designed to brutalize us. And it's designed to keep us locked away in penitentiaries. You know, that is what it is designed to do. And so, you know, what he was sort of calling out was saying, you know, we're not getting parole in the same way that other people are. We're not getting, you know, this system is not is not working for us. And and so why not dream of abolition? That's actually probably a more attainable goal than working within the current system. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, the Black Panthers and something that... I have been learning uh, recently as I've been getting to know, uh, you know, Crip history and, and Crip activism is how Black Panthers and disability activists have been working together for decades. Can Yes. Uh, is there anything that you can say to that? Yeah, I mean, I think quite famously there was the protest in California around the wheel cuts in the sidewalk that were disabled activists took over a state building, I think, and uh, were able to hold the occupation because the Black Panthers came and stood guard at the door and made sure that food was brought in and made sure that there was attendant care, and they worked in collaboration with each other. And I think similarly, disabled activists supported, you know, some of the pushes for Black liberation that were coming from the Black Panther Party. So there's been a relationship that I think, you know, it's historic. And then when you look at the modern manifestations of the Black Liberation Movement and Black Revolution, action like the Black Lives Matter movement. Black Lives Matter started as a disability justice organization. It was queer-led, it was trans-led, it was disabled-led, you know, intentionally so. It intentionally centered the lives of Black disabled people in the work and organizing that it did. So there's a, there's a beautiful history that we're building on. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing that. You know, it's something that I wished I had learned a lot earlier in my, you know, disability work. I think it's such a, a a beautiful thing to acknowledge how just as how these systems of oppression work together to oppress uh, everybody are the work that we're doing to find justice is also entangled together and I think that's just really beautiful yeah 
I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, I would, I haven't actually spoken to many disabled parents and I, and especially disabled trans parents. I would love to know about, you know, kind of how it is to um, balance, you know, your work as an artist as an, and as an activist, especially with all of the work that you do with being a parent. Yeah, I mean, parenting is a wild ride. I'm so thankful that I get to do it. Um, you know, I I have a daughter and, you know, she makes my life worth living. So I'm, I'm so thankful that I get to do it. But it's definitely, for me and my co-parent, who both, we both identify as disabled, you know, uh, there are challenges. You know, it's certainly, uh, there are more, it's a bit more complicated and there are things that you have to kind of sort through as disabled parents about how we're going to care for each other and how we're going to make sure that all the things get done that need to get done, even if you're in a pain flare or even if, you know, you're you're on a low day or a day where, where not much can happen. And so we, you know, build care circles and we take care of each other and, you know, this is part of how we survive it, you know. And there's this sort of beautiful web of, of parents that help to take care of each other through any eventuality and I think that 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 feels really special and really beautiful you know I think um, you know for so many years through eugenic practices that prevented disabled people um, from uh, you know being able to consider parenthood as a possibility and then all of the transphobic practices that actively prevented you know tried to prevent trans people from ever becoming parents you know to, to live in 2020 and to be able to be a black trans disabled parent I, I take this I don't take it lightly I don't take it for granted I'm so thankful to be living in the now and for all that people fought for us to get to be able to be to to live this life. Yeah, I know um, of some of the the practices, the eugenic practices that you were, you were speaking of, things like forced sterilization, um, which I also know was something that Black and Indigenous people also faced as well during those times. So, you know, seeing queer, disabled, and, you know, BIPOC parents always warms my heart and it definitely has changed my feelings on parenthood in general and children in general. I just wanted to kind of celebrate that with you a little bit there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm, as I say, I'm really, I'm really thankful to have the privilege, you know. My daughter is right now in front of me. She's gotten into the makeup bag, and she's painted her forehead bright pink and her lips purple. So <laughs> that's just, you know, that's a part of the fun. Hey, uh, I love a good pink and purple color palette. Yeah, right? <laughs> I think that was all of the, the questions that I had for you. Was there anything else that you wanted to share that you weren't able to touch on yet? I think I would just say, you know, it was like Chris Bell who in 2006 reminded us that what we were recreating was a white disability studies and he really implored us you know, to really think about disability differently and to really, you know, centralize the voices of Black and BIPOC uh, folks with, with disabilities. And I think in this moment right now where the world is literally on fire with rapid change 
around systemic racism, around transphobia, and around the police. You know, now is the time to be an allyship, you know, and to really take up that call to arms from 2006 to say, actually, no, we're going to make sure that when we're talking about disabled people, we mean all disabled people. And when we say, you know, all Black Lives Matter, we mean all Black lives, including Black disabled people. Thank you, and I hope you have a, a great rest of your evening, and uh, in, enjoy your time with your daughter. I will. <laughs> okay, thank you. I could not think of a better way to end this first, though hopefully not last, season of representation. It is so important to remember how queer, disabled, and racialized struggles are entangled together, but so is our liberation. And it is important to remember to celebrate the privileges we've gained that our predecessors were denied. As Cyrus reminded us, it is important that we all do whatever it is we can right now. There are many ways to support the Black community and their fight for justice right now. We need to center our Black and Indigenous members in the disability community, the queer community, and the arts community. If you're looking for ways to act, you can donate to BLMTO, to the family of Regis Korczynski Paquette, or to Black and Indigenous members of the community looking for help. Or you can sign petitions and urge your local representatives to push for defunding police and reallocating those funds into community services that would eliminate the need for policing. Or you can educate family, friends, and members of your community on systemic racism and anti-Blackness. The music used in the podcast is from the song Rules Were Meant to Be Broken from the album Find Safety by Lull, used with permission. Thank you for listening and for supporting the podcast.